Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So I heard that you had a cool interview. Yeah. So as part of this big end of the end of the year, end of the term, end of the administration data retrospective that our friends at Partially Derivative and a bunch of other podcasts are participating in together, I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with Matt Might, who is one of the people who's out there doing the actual work that you and I talk about all the time. He is a, uh, a healthcare researcher. He works at Harvard right now and at the White House, and he's been involved in initiatives like the Cancer Moonshot and the Precision Medicine Initiative. And these are really data-intensive um, healthcare projects that I think are super, super cool. Now, I wasn't actually part of that interview, so I'm going to vanish right now, but I'm really excited to hear about what you guys talk about. Enjoy. Hi, Matt. Hi, Katie. I am here today with Matt Might. Uh, Matt, you want to introduce yourself just real quickly? Sure. Um, I'm Matt Might, and I uh, wear a number of hats. I'm um, a professor in computer science. I'm a professor in medicine, and I also work at the White House on Precision Medi- the Precision Medicine Initiative. And we are going to be talking with Matt today about the Precision Medicine Initiative, how data, healthcare, and government make three wheels of a really cool Venn diagram. And uh, yeah, we think this is going to be a really fun conversation. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Matt, first of all, thank you so much uh, for coming in. You introduced yourself very briefly in the introduction, but maybe we should start by going into your background a little bit more. Can you tell me a little bit about how computer science and medicine have anything to do with each other? Uh, well, that, that's a wonderful question, actually. Um, so what I've been saying a lot of lately is that uh, when historians look back on the history of the 21st century, they're, they're going to make two observations. One is that data was the greatest drug we ever had. And the second is that the Turing machine was the greatest medical device we ever had. Um, and you know, the reason I believe that is we are, we are fast approaching a time where computation has become the limiting reagent in saving human life. And the key driver into saving human life is data about patients. Uh, so at a high level, that's how I, I see computer science and medicine as sort of becoming ever more linked these days. Uh, this, this really is all about saving lives. And I, I really believe that the more computation we can provide, the more lives we can save, particularly in areas like cancer. And so before we move on from this point, just because I think it's kind of interesting for people like you, because you have one foot in each of these worlds, did you start out in medicine and then found yourself thinking about using computers to solve medical problems? Did you come at it from another direction? How does one actually uh, you know, gain enough expertise in both of these fields to be able to see how they tie together? Well, that, that's a great question. Um, with a, it's, got, it's got a long answer, but I'll try to give you the short one. Sure. Um, so my, I started off not in medicine, but in computer science. So I've, I um, have a PhD in computer science. I'm a professor in computer science at the University of Utah. And, um, you know, that's what would have been my life had it not been for my son. So I have a nine-year-old son as well. And uh, we found out that he was the very first case ever discovered of an ultra-rare genetic disorder, uh, oh. literally the first one ever ever found. And in the process of getting him diagnosed, I learned an awful lot about genetics. Um, and then once we got him diagnosed through some very cutting-edge genomic sequencing, uh, I learned an awful lot about drug development. Uh, and then it, shortly after that, I ended up becoming a professor at the Harvard Medical School as well. I would be curious if you don't mind telling us a little bit more about what that looks like. I imagine it's really challenging to, to realize that what you're looking at when you're trying to, you know, diagnose something in a patient is this is the first case of a, of a genomic, uh, you know, uh, condition that we've never seen before. 
So can you walk us through a little bit about like what that looks like and why it's so challenging as someone who's going through it as like a patient or the family member of a patient? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I'll tell you the capsule summary of, of our journey, but this is by no means unique. This is a process hap- that's happening to many families over and over again uh, in the wake of widespread genomic sequencing. So you know, for us, it started off on a place we call Undiagnosed Island. It's this little island with a population of one family, family or one patient. And um, you know, when my son was born, you know, things weren't quite right. And as, as you know, by about six months, we knew something was definitely wrong. And he had seizures, a movement disorder, a developmental delay, and a strange inability to cry tears. Um, and we tried to you know, you know, reconcile these symptoms with just about every known disease out there, and nothing would fit. We just couldn't get anything to fit this strange constellation of symptoms that he had. So by the time he was two years old, we were pretty confident it was genetic. There was, there was indications it was metabolic as well. Um, we said, you know, we've got, we probably have to look into his genome for, for the answer. And so I started learning about genetics and said, well, what I really want to do is sequence, you know, his genome, my genome, or my genome, my wife's genome, and do a diff, uh, basically to, to see, you know, what were the new mutations in him that could have possibly explained this disease? That was my, my thinking at the time. And I actually proposed this as a project to some geneticists at the University of Utah. They said, well, yeah, well, we could do that. You know, we could sequence that. We could generate that data. But at the time, it was going to cost in the order of half a million dollars. And I thought, well, uh, well, it's nice that we can do it in theory. Maybe we'll do it someday in practice. But almost overnight, like I think a couple months later, a brand new sequencing technique came, came out called exome sequencing. And exome sequencing can sequence the genome far more economically uh, because it sequences only the protein uh, coding portions. And so the cost fell by almost two orders of magnitude overnight. And suddenly we were able to get into a research protocol to actually do it. Um, and we did. So this is at Duke University, and we found that he had inherited two different mutations in the same gene, one for me, one for my wife, that knocked out the function of this gene called MGLY1. Um, and then came the shocker. You know, we, we peered at the medical literature along with the scientists at Duke and found out that he was the very first case. There was no prior evidence of this gene ever being linked to human disease. And so what they said is, we are reasonably confident that this is the cause of your son's disorder. Um, and so that's how... Um, we ended up with this very rare N of one diagnosis. That's a pretty incredible story. And so then from that, this, you know, piques your interest in, you know, understanding how computer science can be brought to bear on genomics questions. And then I know a little bit about the precision medicine initiative, but I think you would be a better person to explain maybe how that's uh, in some ways a natural extension perhaps of, of the journey that you started on there with your son. Yeah. So that, that's a wonderful question. Yeah. So, the reason the Precision Medicine Initiative is so important is that it's going to generate the data that really enables us to um, unlock the first stage of genomic or precision medicine. So when you get a diagnosis that's, that's ultra rare like this, um, the first question is how do you know you got it right? You know, so when you look into somebody like my son's genome, you're going to find lots of mutations. And only one or likely only one of them is the cause of a rare genetic disorder. Um, so the question is, which one? Now the scientists at Duke narrowed down, uh, narrowed it down to this gene NGLY1 after some after some trial and error and some reasoning about the individual mutations they saw. Um, but it's a very it's a very manual process right now. And you know what we really need uh, to get you know, better insight into which gene, which mutations are pathogenic is lots of data. 
what we need are lots of genomes from lots of people so that when we, we want to know what a particular region of the genome is doing, we can, we can look at it and say, well, if you have variation in this part of the genome, what does that do to human health? So if we enroll, say, a million Americans, which is what the Precision of Medicine Initiative is trying to do, and collect their genomes and correlate that with their health records, we can start to understand relationships between genes, disease, and environment for the very first time in a very granular way that we actually need if we want to use genomic information in a clinical context. Yeah, so I think that a, a way that in the past when I've been thinking about this problem of what are the different kinds of medical data sets that um, maybe exist right now, but they're, but they're siloed, um, maybe they're only starting to be collected, I kind of find it useful to think of this as like there's a big table and in that table, each row is a person, and each column is some piece of, of data that we could collect about them, whether it's uh, a piece of medical information from their ele electronic health record, maybe it's a gene in their genome, uh, maybe it's some kind of other measurement that we can, a behavioral point of data, like this is a person who smokes or something. So if we imagine, you know, this, this data set that doesn't really exist yet, um, but it could hypothetically Walk us through like some of the really cool things that we can't do right now, but if we were to put the right columns in combination in that table, or if we were able to get enough rows in that table, what are some of the things that we could do in the future that we can't do right now? That's, that's a great question. And I think, you know, um, one of the big things we're going to do over and over and over again are genome-wide association studies. Um, where we're going to take this table, and let's suppose that you know, um, you know, for for now, the columns in this table are basically every position in your genome. So we're going to have a, you know, a three billion wide uh, table, and you know, three billion entries for every individual, and then an additional few entries for aspects of their phenotype, or you know, basically elements from their, their health record, or perhaps a, a, some kind of data we've collected about the person other than their genome. And then the question becomes, you know. Where does variation in the genome predict variation in the phenotype? Um, so, for example, are there genes that predict whether you're more likely to be a smoker? Are there genes that predict whether you're more predisposed to certain kinds of heart disease? Are there genes that seem to cause uh, epilepsies? You know, the, these are the questions we want to ask. Uh, so we're going to be doing lots of association studies once we can construct this giant table that contains everyone's genome and aspects of everyone's phenotype at the same time. Okay, so the Precision Medicine Initiative, I think it's, it's fairly clear there why, you know, creating this table is something that would pay really big dividends for doing machine learning on, on health information. One thing we haven't talked about yet, but I think is worth noting is that this is sort of government initiative. This is a priority of the White House and of the president to um, put this table together, if you like. So why is that something that the government has decided to take a lead on, you know, and what are some of the benefits that we get from that, as opposed to having it be something that's done in um, in pharmaceutical companies or in academic research labs or sort of the other places where this research could be taking place? Yeah, the, uh, again, yeah, it's another great question. Uh, so I, it certainly is a government-initiated initiative, uh, but the way I would phrase it at this point is that it's really a collaborative effort between government. Uh, it's certainly getting a lot of direction from the White House and agencies like the NIH, the FDA, ONC, um, and, and the VA, but it's, it's really a partnership with um, industry, with academia, and ultimately with, with patients, or, or what we prefer to call them as participants themselves. Um, and it's, it's kind of groundbreaking in many ways. Uh, so I think we're going to do several things differently with this, because we're going to tie together multiple health systems. And because we want you know, a million people, we're going we're gonna to get different health healthcare systems to export data 
ultimately in a common way. And I think that's that's going to be a huge milestone in terms of electronic health records. It's going to take a lot of coordination uh, from places like uh, ONC to, to really pull that off. Uh, and it's also going to take a lot of coordination between the different partners uh, in, in this effort. Uh, we also want to engage participants as never before. We want partici participants really to be equals in this in this research endeavor, so that it you know it's it's valuable to them as well and not just to researchers. Um, there's going to be a very pretty large emphasis on including these participants in the kinds of research questions that are asked, uh, as well as you know a, an effort to include uh, participants in. Um, you know, return of results so that participants actually get something back from being engaged in, in this kind of research. And that kind of shift in style really takes a big push uh, from a place like the White House, from somebody like the president, to make that happen because we're changing the way we do research through the Precision Medicine Initiative. Now that you've been working on this for a while, I'd be curious to learn a little bit more. What are some of the things that have been the most challenging about doing this work? Um, and in particular, the ones that have been the things that have been challenging that you hadn't anticipated as being particularly that, you know, at the outset you hadn't assumed that it had been really challenging, but once you get in there, it turns out, oh, this is actually a really tricky problem. And I mean this both in like a technical and scientific sense, but also perhaps uh, in like a bureaucratic sense, a legislative sense, also in the sense that, you know, people can be uh, rightfully a little bit nervous about uh health information being out there, you know, there's a lot of like privacy and confidentiality concerns. So what were some of those things that ended up being actually major issues that you had to deal with in, in thinking about how we're going to put together this data set and how we're going to, you know, bring people together to participate in this? Yeah. So there's a number of, I'd say, you know, technical and bureaucratic challenges that come with an undertaking like this. Um, you know, on the technical side, you have ones that I just mentioned, like the fact that we want different healthcare systems to to allow their patients to enroll in this initiative, which means we have to accept health records from different healthcare systems from potentially different EHR vendors. Um, and yet we have to harmonize them in some way. So and let me, can I just jump in here real quick? So EHR, this took me oh, a while to, to catch up on. This is electronic health records. That's right. And we should that's think right. of those as like when you go to your doctor and you're talking with your doctor and they, you know, are collecting some information, they're taking your height, your weight, there may be asking you some behavioral, all of this stuff gets entered into your electronic health record, which is then, you know, hypothetically exists in some electronic system and maybe we could pull it out. But in practice, um, it turns out that's a lot easier said than done, perhaps. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, e even for an individual system, sometimes just getting an export of all the records that are of all the participants in that system can be challenging. Uh, and then taking those records and harmonizing them across systems is an even bigger challenge. Um, you know, so for, for example, I've actually spent a lot of my time working with just the VA on their own version of the Precision Medicine Initiative, which is the Million Veterans Program, which is also collaborating with the Precision Medicine Initiative, I should say as well. Um, and even within the VA, where you have a very unified healthcare system, there are challenges in you know uh, comparing healthcare records from one hospital to the next, and you might not expect that at first. But if different hospitals, for example, use different lab uh, different lab techniques for measuring, say, creatinine kinase or something like that, then you actually have to harmonize uh, the values between the different hospitals. And yeah, that's something that uh, even I hadn't anticipated going in. Uh, but it's something you have to do if you want to do really good data science on top of uh, all this data we're collecting. And, you know, when you go out to the, the broader precision medicine initiative, we're going to have you know, many different health, healthcare systems uh, working together. That, you know, the challenge of harmonization for individual records in the EHR uh, becomes even more, more striking. But, it, it, you know, this, this is a problem that I'm, I'm pretty sure we can solve. 
it's not necessarily going to be easy, but it's 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 an engineering challenge at the end of the day that I think we're we're ready to to handle. Um, and then there's um, you know there are there are certainly you know political challenge and regulatory challenges as well. You know I think privacy is a big one. You know we we yeah you know, I, I think some people might be concerned about mass collection of data of this kind. And so there was a lot of thoughtfulness put into making sure that patients would be protected, uh, that the privacy would be safeguarded, and that we would take security of that, that seriously as well. So that we are confident that when patients or participants enroll in this initiative, we are protecting their privacy in an appropriate way um, that still allows good research to be done. You know, so there's, there's some tensions here. And uh, I, you know, it, it took a very long time to really strike the right balance. In some cases, we're still striking it. Uh, but uh, I've, I've been impressed at the thoughtfulness on all sides and the inclusion of participants from the beginning in every round of discussions uh, that, that we've had on these topics. Thank you for that answer. That's actually, you know, I really appreciate you touching on all the different parts of this because I, I, uh, I, I know that there's a lot of them. One of the things that you brought up a few times was harmonization, and I know that this is this can be a little bit of a technical term, and you explained it a bit, but since you mentioned it a few times, I think it is worth digging into. So for you as a scientist, what's the importance of, you know, what is harmonization, and then what's the importance of having a harmonized data set, if you could speak to that? Sure. You know, so, you know, harmonization here making sh- is making sure that if you pull, you know, two kinds of data from different healthcare systems, uh, and yeah, I used the example earlier of, of creatinine kinase levels, that you really can compare one to the other. Um, because if they're, if they're collected in different ways, you could have uh, batch effects so that, it, you know, one, you know, one distribution of these values is skewed in one direction over the other. And so when you, when you want, when you harmonize between these systems, you want to make sure that you, um, you end up, you know, sort of skewing the same way. So you're gonna have to study to see how, how these values skew and, um, uh, sort of normalize them in the same way. And if you don't do that, then when you try to do any kind of, you know, association studies on top of that, um, you're going to end up doing some noise mining and, uh, you're not, <laughs> you're not going to find the, the right results. Uh, I like that term noise mining. I might have to, uh, steal that someday. I was wondering if we could also talk about the cancer moonshot a little bit, which I know is is not where you've spent quite as much time, but it's another, you know, one of these major healthcare initiatives that has a huge data component. Um, so maybe from, from what you know about the cancer moonshot and the precision medicine initiative, um, can you give us a little bit of an idea of how these two pieces of, of healthcare data science actually fit together maybe in a way that wouldn't be immediately obvious? That's a great question, and I think they fit together surprisingly well. Um, so I, the way I look at it is, you know, the Precision Medicine Initiative as structured, if you look at the kind of data it's collecting, that giant table you described that we're building, it's the sequel to the Human Genome Project in the sense that this is the Human Genome Understanding Project. Um, with that data, we can finally understand what our genome is and what it is doing. And, you know, if we, if we see a mutation in the wild, we can look in this table and get a sense of what it might be doing to human health. Um, and that, again, that's a critical first step in understanding disease and understanding a patient's condition enough to give them a diagnosis. But obviously patients want a lot more than understanding. You know, they actually want a treatment. And that's where clinical precision medicine comes in. And I see the cancer moonshot is a massive effort in clinical precision medicine. And clinical precision medicine to me is really all about taking a patient's data, which can include genomic information, uh, and mapping it into the right treatment for them. or perhaps an approximation of that function that I just described, which really takes that data and maps it into either a set of reasonable treatments for them or uh, 
a set of possible scientific experiments you could run that might illuminate the next step you should take on the way on the path towards the right treatment. And so in terms of actually doing that research, you know, now we have the recognition that this is these are data sets that we want to assemble. There's it sounds like some consensus on what should be in those data sets. Um, what are the next big pieces that you see as starting to fall into place or that would need to fall into place um, before we start to see some of the biggest returns? Or maybe there's even like returns on the Precision Medicine Initiative uh, that you could, that have already started to become apparent that you could speak to a little bit. But like, you know, how do we start turning data into, you know, insights? What's the actual process by which you see that happening? Yeah, so th there's a number of ways we can go about this. Um, so I, I think as, as the data starts to roll in, we're going to have a, a much better understanding of what regions of the genome mean and what they do. And this is going to allow us to interpret genomes, particularly for healthy people, for the first time. You know, right now, a lot of the focus on interpreting genomic information is very focused on rare disease cases and on cancer, you know, where you're, you're sequencing tumors. So when you sequence rare disease genomes, you have a very specific methodology for hunting for the one gene causing a problem, typically. And in cancer genomes, you do you do something similar, but you're, you, know, you might be looking for several genes, but you're often looking for a driver gene that's really pushing the cancer forward. Um, and when you find those genes, then you go after them with, with targeted medications, or at least that's the idea. The, the process of turning data into cured or treated patients um, you know, really rests on collecting this data from the Precision Medicine Initiative because it will be the key. It be the, basically the Rosetta Stone that unlocks um, each person's genome and tells us what it is about their genome that is causing their health problems. And for healthy people, this is particularly important. You know, for, for, for most of us, there's going to be some subtle variation in our genomes that add up to predispositions to different kinds of diseases. And, and these are really hard to tease out unless you have tremendous amounts of data. Um, about you know lots of people's genomes, so that we can really find you know the very the very you know fine grained impact of of individual mutations that collectively can add up to you know large predispositions to say heart disease or, or certain kinds of cancers. Um, and once we have that, we can again start targeting those genes um, that that we find that might lead to these predispositions with with drugs. Um, so I, th I think we're we're going to proceed in several phases here. So in the clinic, you know, we're going to sequence people either they're them or their tumors or something like that. And we're going to start to look for targeted medications for individual genes that pop up there. And then in aggregate, we're, we're going to find are lots of, of drug targets. Uh, I think when we start to really sift through that giant table, we're going to find genes that are associated with protecting you against heart disease, protecting you against certain kinds of cancers, or um, you know, protecting you in general. And those genes will become targets for drug development uh, that may someday lead to, you know, preventative medicines that you can take to um, increase or decrease or, or really just decrease your risk of, of having certain conditions. And so do you think, are you as a researcher in a place right now where you have any confidence in knowing how long, uh, you know, that how far away that future is? Or do you think that on the one, because on the one hand, I might imagine that you say like, yeah, in 10 years, I think we'll be at this point or in 20 years we'll be at that point. I can also imagine that maybe having this data set because having this data set is something that's totally unprecedented and we've never put anything like this together before that it's very hard to know as a scientist what the benefit to that might be. So yeah, do you uh, do you know how long basically it takes before these kinds of results start coming out? Do you have any confidence in your ability to predict something like that? Well, it's, it's it's hard to speculate, but it won't stop me from trying. Um, and I would say we're going to get benefits arriving in 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 waves. And in for the first wave, the future is now. 
So I think rare disease is the first wave of, of, of precision medicine in the sense that it's going to be the first to, to broadly benefit in terms of diagnosis and, and for treatment. So we are able to diagnose in rare disease now as never before. Uh, and we're discovering new diseases at a rate unparalleled in human history at the same time. And uh, when you have a rare genetic disease, what you have typically is a single genetic target to shoot at. So you get a diagnosis, you find out that, that there's one gene involved, that it is the root cause of everything a patient is experiencing. And so now you have one thing to shoot at. Um, and I, I think um, broadly construed, and this is, this is a bit of a simplification, what we're really trying to do through precision medicine is come up with a generic strategy for countering the effects of dysregulation in, 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 a, in a single gene. Um, over and over and over again. And the reason this is important is that, you know, when we move on to the next waves of precision medicine, which would include cancer and, um, and, and more common conditions, we're not going to be fighting just one gene at a time anymore. Uh, so that's why I, I see rare disease as, as sort of the, the, you know, the, the first to benefit from precision medicine, and it's already starting to happen. You know, you're already starting to, to get cases where you're getting these, these ultra-rare diagnoses, and in some cases you're going straight to drug. Uh, it's not common yet, but it's starting to happen now. And in many cases, it's allowing communities to form that can start going um, on their on their, on their own path towards drug development. You know, so I've certainly done a lot of that with, with my son. Uh, and we've, we've had tremendous progress there in, in finding therapeutics uh, for him. And it's just, this is, again, it's starting to happen with other rare disease communities as well. So for rare disease, precision medicine is already here. Um, for cancer, it's, it's, it's going to be you know, implemented in slow motion over time you know, one gene at a time. We're continuing to discover oncogenes and um, you know, other, other genes that aggravate or drive cancer. And as we discover them, these become targets um, for, for therapies. And so one by one, we are identifying these targets and we're developing drugs for them. And that's, that right now, that's a very slow motion process. It takes a long time to develop a drug for an individual target. But it's something our species does know how to do. Uh, and we, we will do it again and again. So you know, uh, it, it could grind itself out over the course of decades. Uh, although I expect accelerants are here and are, are, are coming in the future. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's one way to win the war on cancer. Very, very slowly, step by step, is gene by gene. Um, it's almost like, you know, in, in, in World War II when you had to take, you know, every single Japanese island. Um, well, it's kind of the same thing with cancer. We've got to take them all one by one. Every, every, every cancer-driving gene one by one. And, and, and we'll do that. So thinking, yeah, thinking towards the future a little bit, we're at a little bit of a special time right now because the 21st Century Cures Act was just passed uh, last week, which was this big, um, you know, very bipartisan bill that was uh, pushed through Congress and then signed by the president that has a number of different uh, planks in it for the Cancer Moonshot, for the Precision Medicine Initiative, for a number of other um, healthcare initiatives. Um, I wonder if you could take a moment and speak to some of the specific policy pieces that are in the Cures Act or in other um, you know, initiatives that you're aware of that you think will be uh, some of the really cool ones to look for, the stuff that really changes the system and the way that we do this kind of science in a way that will uh, accelerate this work going forward. Well, I mean, I'm personally most excited about the funding for the Precision Medicine Initiative and the sure. Cancer Moonshot. Um, and I don't know everything that's in Cures. Um, I, I'm certainly excited about anything that's providing incentives for drug development for rare disease or rare cancers and things like that. And I know that there are some specific uh, amendments in the bill uh, for, for that, but I actually don't know many of the specifics about those at the moment. Um, well, you know. that, and that's fair. In, in fairness, I tried to read it a little bit uh, last week and did not make it very far. So anyone who's able to read legislation that's far ahead of me on this. Um, 
one of the other things also looking uh, towards the future, you know, this being the end of the administration, it's kind of a natural place to pause and look back at all the things that have been um, accomplished. Uh, and then as you're looking towards the future a little bit, Matt, do you have any idea about like what is next in store for you personally? So for, for me personally, um, I'll be staying at the White House a little bit longer. Uh, I'd, I'd like to, to shepherd precision medicine into the next administration to the extent that I can. And um, I, I'd also like to you know have a bigger engagement with the VA, uh, regardless of what I do with the White House going forward. I've had a, a lot of fun working with them doing good data science um, for the Million Veterans Program, where we're you know, again enrolling a million veterans uh, and, and answering the same kinds of questions. Uh, I, and really what I want to see is um, the computational support uh, and, and the data science support necessary to enable clinical precision medicine developed. Um, you know, right now, I think if it, when these cases walk into the clinic, physicians are overwhelmed. You know, they have a lot of decisions to make. And I have what I call the algorithm for precision medicine, which is this um, process, step-by-step -step process for taking a patient's data all the way through to a treatment, or really these days, a set of experiments you might want to run next. And I want the support in place for physicians and for patients, really, to follow that algorithm. And uh, that's becoming a major part of my, my medical research program going forward. So clinical precision medicine, I think, will be a big passion of mine. And then um, about half of me will always be dedicated to the computer science uh, that I've always done, which has nothing to do with the medicine that I do. Um, so in computer science, I do a lot of cybersecurity, and a lot of that is grounded in programming languages, of all things. So I develop programming languages and analysis of programming languages that make um, fundamentally secure software development possible. And a lot of that is, is funded by the military through DARPA. Uh, I also do a fair bit of scientific computing work through domain-specific languages for partial differential equations um, that you know, enable you know, non-domain or non-expert or non-programming experts to very rapidly describe the kinds of scientific problems they want to solve and then have them solved at scale. Um, so going forward, it's going to be a, a mixture of these, these very different fields. I'll be doing clinical precision medicine, um, some of the population scale precision medicine where we do the data science on these big data sets, these big tables that we talked about earlier. And um, I'll be uh, working on cybersecurity through programming languages as well. That is in, that is not where I thought that answer was going to go. I did not think we were going to start talking about cybersecurity, but that's really cool. Um, that's really exciting that you get to uh, continue to wear both hats. Um, also, you know, looking towards the future a little bit, I know that there are a lot of people who listen to this program who are either data scientists themselves or they're interested in data science. They see it as a place where they can have you know, a lot of impact as, as scientists, as researchers, as people who are trying to make the world a, a better place. So for the people who are listening right now who are like, this sounds kind of cool. Um, I might be interested in this. What would be, what would be your sales pitch to them about why this is a cool way to spend a career? You know, what would you say to them if you could speak to them directly? Uh, well, I, I really think this era of computational precision medicine is in, in its infancy. And going forward, I, I do believe that computation really is a limiting reagent in saving people's lives. Uh, and good algorithms are, are a major part of, of that saving. And you have a chance to get it on the ground floor. Um, there's tons of low-hanging fruit left. So um, you can make, I think, a big difference in a very short amount of time by helping us invent and imagine what this field is really going to be. Uh, so if you're a programmer, um, learn some biology. If you're a biology, learn some, in, bio, in biology, learn some programming, and come make a difference. Uh, there's a lot to do. And for people who are, you know, very happy with where they are right now, and they're making a difference in their own way, but they still think that these initiatives are really cool, and they want to do what they can to encourage them. 
Uh, what are the roles that those kinds of people can play in these initiatives going forward? Well, certainly they, they can enroll in the initiative itself. You know, so they can be one of the million that enrolls and uh, contributes their data. You oh, know, so if, if, cool. If so you're how, willing to yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> well, it's not quite set up yet, okay. but I, I think in the next month or two, we'll be, be able to begin enrolling patients uh, to participating healthcare providers. So just out of curiosity, like what, what is that process actually going to look like? Uh, well, we haven't finished designing it yet, uh, but my understanding is that uh, you know you'll be able to tell your your healthcare provider that you want to enroll in the initiative. You'll end up taking a questionnaire of some kind. Um, uh, you'll consent to the process. You'll get some blood drawn, and uh, then then you're in. You're then you're in, and then there'll be some mobile applications that you can interact with uh, to engage in the initiative at that point. That's really cool. Well, I think that just about brings us to the end of the time that that we had for this today. Not to be weird and creepy about it, but I follow you on Twitter, Matt, and I saw that uh, that your son, who was the original inspiration for all of this, uh, was visiting the Oval Office today. Is that right? Uh, it was actually a few days ago. So he turned nine years old last week. Um, and so I actually reserved the, the, the Truman Bowling Alley at the White House for his birthday party. Um, and I brought together uh, not just patients with his disease, but uh, several rare diseases, um, scientists working on his disease, um, and clinicians, all to to have a, a literally a birthday party at the bowling uh, at the White House. And uh, so we all went bowling, and we chatted science. We started collaborations, um, and we had cupcakes. We threw strikes and uh, a whole bunch of gutter balls. It was it was a lot of fun. And then I took a number of them, including the the, the rare disease patients on a tour of the West Wing and took them by the Oval Office so that they could see it. And I think that was a, was definitely a special moment for a lot of them. That is extremely cool. That's so great that I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to do that. I'm really jealous right now. Um, I think that is an awesome sales pitch also for why you should be working in this field because you get to go bowling in the White House. Um, that would be on my bucket list. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your stories today. I think that this has been really interesting and I've learned 25 new things in the last uh, half hour or so. Uh, I really appreciate you, number one, doing this work in the first place. It sounds incredibly important and I'm so glad that there are uh, smart and thoughtful people like you who are uh, taking it upon themselves to do this work and also uh, to come on our program today and talk about it. I think this was, uh, this was really, really great. Well, thanks for making the time. This is absolutely a pleasure. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.